magicians, wizards, apparitions, adult language, and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not enter the House of Mystery. All right, then. On with the show. All right, hello. Welcome, everyone, to the House of Mystery, the John Constantine and Friends podcast. I am Michael Flores, the host and curator of the House of Mystery. Yes, I got a more pretentious voice as we proceeded through the intro because something about the house of mystery sounds very uppity does it not dave a little bit but i love it still yeah (laughs) and we have a very awesome topic to talk about today we have a very exciting book to discuss (laughs) a book that i had read long ago but didn't remember a damn thing about it and that is the books of magic Arguably, the if you're a DC historian, mm-hmm. you should know why this set is so important to DC history. Amazing. It's an it's amazing. amazing accomplishment. It's a graphic novel written by one of my all-time favorite authors, Neil Gaiman. Yes. I've read everything I can get my greedy hands on that he has written. Uh, this is a book I decided to read again due to its connection to the new ongoing Hellblazer title. How deep is that connection? We do not know yet. However, it was used as a bit of a catalyst or a platform to launch the new Sandman Universe Hellblazer series. This was a strange experience rereading this. And uh, I'll tell you why. I remember reading, as I said, but I, I just don't remember anything of relevance. Parts of it, as I'm going through, I remember, I'm like, oh, I I vaguely remember that. This series did come out in 1990, originally. So it's a very, very long time. And fuck, this is good. And and not just good, like, oh, yeah, it's a good read. You should check it out. It's excellent. I'm talking a piece of modern-day literature. Someone out there, Dave, may say, oh, Michael, that's a bit hyperbolic. It's really not. No. It's an excellent read, artistic at times, uh, geniusly abstract when it should be. And to be honest, I'm baffled, completely baffled that Hollywood hasn't bothered to snatch this up yet and turn into a film. Oh, honestly, yes. Nowadays, back then, I think if they were trying to if they were to try to make books of magic back then into a film, right. I think it would go pe- over people's heads. We'd get Willow. So stupid. Willow, or we would get actually like the Constantine film. Honestly. Well, the Constantine film is pretty good though. The Constantine film is good. It's not but, really a Constantine movie, but it's not horrible as a movie. But if you think about it, a lot of the stuff that is very, just like what you said, very abstract mm-hmm. when it comes to the story, especially right. in like Constantine, it'd be very difficult to take those same themes and tones that just are everywhere in books of magic that's fair dave Uh, now that you framed it that way that's fair because there are some very i guess you can call it lynchian you know david lynchian vibes maybe even a little bit of stephen king in there at times dude you're dealing with like bringing bringing in classic literature like bringing in stories of arthurian legend bringing mm -hmm. in characters like merlin Right, and then not making them just simply straightforward because we've been there, done that. There is a bit of an abstract vibe to much of the story, but not abstract as a way to be pretentious or abstract to confuse because they don't really know the story. It was abstract in a way to build, you know, metaphor and to form poetic thought. I mean, it's an amazing accomplishment. But the reason why I bring up the, the cinema side or the film side of this is because I could totally see in today's cinematic environment and what the current appetite is for, for content, I could totally see a director like Guillermo del Toro tackling oh, this. Yes. Yeah. Del Toro is that type of directing is yeah. what's needed for this type of story. Or maybe even a little bit of uh, Nolan. 
I mean, I guess even Nolan, Nolan doesn't really yeah. delve into the fantastical very much, but he does do delve into the mind fuckery. Yeah, especially like with a movie like Inception. Inception, like it would be a good example of like what yeah. he could do to a story, a story framing like Books of Magic. And it's possible to do it. I mean, a lot the the the, the saddest thing that I always shake my head at is people always co- compare this to Harry Potter. Yeah, and, and I can see the similarities. I can see the similarities, but the, to a to a layman, to a layman, to a layman, to a, <laughs> to a layman. That's, a, that's such to, an asshole. To statement. a simpleton. To how about that? How about a simpleton? <laughs> to a simpleton. Yes, yes. Think, think like that. I was trying to be a little more polite <laughs> to a layman. I just go for the jugular. Because if you don't know the, what a layman is, they're not going to get insulted. But now that you said simpleton, but like, <laughs> wait a second. <laughs> Hold on here. That's why, that's why I was like, I go for the jugular, you know, just, just call them what it is. <laughs> but the, the, the whole point, the whole point is to actually, I understand why people make that, make that comparison to Harry Potter. Yeah. But then when you really dive deep into the, just the first it's couple pages, like yeah. you're dealing with such abstract ideas. Yes. I mean, the, the, the whole idea of like, a, almost like a world within a world yes. where the regular world doesn't really see the goings on of, yeah. of the magic and how Constantine can just simply you know, travel and just get to places and the person he's traveling with Tim Hunter in this case, which we'll get into him in a second. He's just like, wait, what a sec. Wait, how did we get here? How do we get here? Yeah. So that type of stuff is very similar to Harry Potter where yeah. they travel through little portals that can only be seen by, by people of which birth or whatever, how, what do they call them? Non-moguls? Not non-moguls. Yeah, yeah. Forgive my lack of Harry Potter knowledge. I'm just, but I've like, seen all the movies, but I'm not a big fan. I give I give a lot of props to J.K. Rowling because they like, for stealing game and story, <laughs> not for stealing, but basically I, give, I just want to say I get a lot of I give a lot of props uh, for J.K. Rowling's uh, for finding a, a way to um, what's it called when you don't want to be accused of when you don't want to be accused of plagiarism. What do you do as a student? You paraphrase, <laughs> paraphrase. so you can't get caught. <laughs> but like. The, 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 she was able I'm, to take. I, hold on, Dave. Let me just apologize because <laughs> I think J.K. Rawlings is a good writer. Yeah, oh, I'm just, I'm just a little fuckery here. Oh yeah, of our own kind. But like, that's why I give. Uh, that's why I was saying I give a lot of props to J.K. Rowling because she was able to take, you know, very very tough ideas and mm-hmm. story elements and make it work for but the mainstream. Make it work for her audience. That Small was a little thing. digestible packets, if you will. You got to remember that she wrote this. Not for the main audience, but for an audience that was younger of age. Yeah. So that they can ingest it and understand it. And then as she wrote her series along, she was able to increase increase the kind of ideas that she was trying to bring into her story so that it was so that it was comfortable for her readers. Have you ever heard anything from that front for any based on any factual pieces of information? Has J.K. Rawlings ever admitted to being inspired by Gaiman's work because they are friends, right? I believe they're friends, but I never actually read anything connecting the two in, in yeah. any way. But I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, writer circles are much more uh, connected than a lot of people say. Yeah, it's almost like homeless circles. You know, they all know each <laughs> other. Much. They all exchange crack and, and, and share needles and fuck. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> I, I'm not saying J.K. Rowling's and Gaiman fucked, but it's a possibility. It's a possibility. I'm willing to go out on that limb and say they, they did. While it's, they were writing their prose, they were also having sex. It, it, it's a way of transferring ideas. Oh, wow. What if it was? <laughs> Quickly. <laughs> Quickly. Get, let me have sex with the smartest person around here. <laughs> Yeah, so this book you should I definitely feel like this book is something you should hand to someone when oh, they absolutely. when they say comics are for children or comics aren't able to tell great stories. And I can understand their argument to some degree. Um the reason comics are perceived by the mainstream as trite, even low art at times, well not at times, almost all the time. And I would say, by and large, they do have an argument. But you can also form the same argument when it comes to television and movies. 
I'd say the books of magic and others like it are far and few between. Yes, that is true. It's kind of like that indie film that took home all the awards at the Oscars that most people didn't even bother to watch because it didn't have fast cars, hot chicks and and shooting in it giant robots right so to say comics are for children and low art you can form that same argument maybe not the four children aspect but the low art aspect you can definitely form the exact same argument and say well the same thing can be said about television and movies and possibly any other industry you know anything that uh, is of art that you can ingest yeah and like it, it the books of magic as a series as a whole is one of those ones that i think gets overlooked at times because which like, is amazing how is this not on a list of well because books more everyone, often everyone constantly points to sandman oh sandman go read sandman go read sandman neil gaiman sandman uh, right and it, it is an excellent series as well yeah and then books of magic though i think this is g- getting in from the ground level type read yes I, I would also hand this to someone that i would hand this to someone who was just getting into dc comics Especially if you'd like, if you would like to get involved in the reading, in reading more of the world of magic side of things or the fantastical side of things, and you want to be explained a bit better, it's a more nuanced introduction into the landscape or world where we find Constantine, Phantom Stranger, Dr. Occult. It's not your usual normal go-to soups like Batman, Superman, and the Justice League. But it's still connected to the DC universe. Absolutely. Especially at this time. This was actually published in 1990 originally within the DC imprint. It wasn't until 1993, I believe, is when Vertigo uh, was founded and formed. And then pretty much everything pertaining to these stories were ripped from the main DC publishing imprint and moved yes. over to Vertigo. Yeah. So all these things are all interconnected. I'm not going to get into the continuity and cause it just creates oh, arguments no. amongst fans. I, I tell people stay away from the continuity of DC, especially when it comes to Vertigo, because you will get a headache. I get a headache <laughs> just thinking about it <laughs> because it is such a cluster F. Yes. It's hard to actually think putting it all together. The, uh, when it comes to like the Vertigo, I always tell people just look at it at its individual basis. They're fantastic. Just stories enjoy the stories. And don't, over, don't overthink where this yeah. goes and and where it belongs. And where it just, belongs. Just, just to be clear, the the books of magic specifically mention Superman. Yes. So it's all connected. It's all connected, but we don't need that hammer. The you know, in the face that basically says, here's Superman. No, just right. mention it. He, they're in the universe. Take a deep breath. Just focus on the story that's being told. Yeah. And, and like, for the most part, the mechanics, the magical mechanics that make this world work is pretty much on par with everything DC. Oh, yeah. That's the beautiful thing about this book. It truly does open up that door of wonderment and explain things from the magical side of things rather than jumping into a book, you know, reading Detective Comics or reading a Superman title <clears throat> where you're brought into this world of of superheroes and and hope and optimism. You're brought into the, the sometimes the underbelly of society uh, through a gateway or portal into the world of magic. And it's the same, you know, worlds of sorts but it's just a different perspective a different side it's a different side and the w- way i tell people is it's if you like the good to- side of town dave where my uh, cousins <laughs> live and then the mexican side of town mexican where, side. where i live the, the, the hood uh, if you will the barrio yeah the barrio the barrio <laughs> but like the the thing i always tell people about the books of magic is it's a historical look at the history of magic within dc because each book, you have yeah. to understand, is uh, the main character, Tim, is actually being brought through different phases of magical history in the DC universe and being explained, this is what it, this is what it costs to actually use magic. This is what magic can do. Yeah. And that's what I thought was the brilliant thing that they did by using certain characters that made sense. Like... Not just the Phantom Stranger and Constantine, no, but they, when he goes in the past, yeah. suddenly he, you see Etrigan yeah. and Jason Blood. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's get into this. The uh, synopsis 
The Books of Magic is the title of a four-issue English-language comic book miniseries written by Neil Gaiman, published by DC Comics, and later an ongoing series under the imprint Vertigo. Since its original publication, the miniseries has also been published in a single-volume collection under the Vertigo imprint, which is the one I read uh, currently for this discussion, with an introduction by author Roger Zelansky. It tells the story of a young boy who has the potential to become the world's greatest magician. Dave, your initial thoughts on this four-part series. My initial thoughts on this before I even before I even read it, before I even read it, I was interested in it because it was something different at the time. Now, did you read this in the 90s at any point? Yes, I did. Okay. So just like me, you didn't quite remember. Yeah, I didn't quite remember it. The only thing I can remember about uh, the very first time I ever saw this book was I wanted to read something that was different at the time because I was in that phase of comic book where I was, I, I wanted to get away from, you know, Spider-Man, right, Batman, the, 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 norm, stuff, the norm, the norm. Yeah. And I wanted to try something different. I saw this. You wanted to get away from the layman's. Yes. <laughs> the simpletons. <laughs> I wanted to educate myself. <laughs> That's crazy. But like, people are going to be unsubscribing today. At that time, at the time, I was really into horror comics. As funny as it sounds, horror comics, horror, uh, horror. Oh, horror. horror. Okay, I was horror like, comics. Can you send me some of those horror comics? I might be interested <laughs> in seeing some of those. But like, then I found the books of magic, and yeah. I, I basically said, okay, I'll give this a shot. And ever since then, a lot of my friends know this about me. Books mm -hmm. of magic grew into one of my favorite series of all time. So when you reread it and it was fresh in your mind. Oh, it felt great. Nostalgic glasses. Yeah. Forget the nostalgic glasses. This was a solid good story that I forgot a little bit about because so much time had passed. Yeah. And especially when you read as many comic books as you, you read so much comics. It's a little easier for me. They to, all blend together because like, yeah, the thing I find really frustrating at times is like, I remember things back from the nineties. And I think it happens in the two thousands. Yeah. And I'm like going, Oh wait. And then when, uh, you know, when uh, we do like pieces like this, I'm like going, Holy crap, 1990. That means I was, you know, You're like 10. Yeah. I was like, I was around like 11, 10 yeah. or 11. And I read this and I'm like going, Hey, you know what? I'm pretty proud of myself. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of shows well, that basically like this book can be read by any age. Yeah. It's not overly mature by any means. No, the concepts are really sometimes difficult the, to understand. Some, some of the themes are a little more mature. Absolutely. Yes. Some of the yeah. concepts and themes are above a certain grade level. Yeah. But well, I do, I do say that basically kids should be able to read this. If you can read Harry Potter. Um, there was, some, I was thinking of letting my kid read this after I reread it. I was like, this is really good. I think this would be a great introduction into, you know, really cool comics my son's 11, and I remember writing down a note. I don't know what it was now. There was a moment that made me decide against it. There was something. I don't know if it was blood or if it was sexual. And I was like, you know what? He doesn't need to read that. I think it's the... Because think, comic books fucked me up when I was 11, when I was reaching for that section that was, you know, off limits to kids, but they never, ever patrolled that area. I'm like, oh, big boobs. I like this. I think for me, it was probably when Tim got brought to the present. You know, when John Constantine is showing him the current landscape of, of, of. The was DC that the issue that was I a little think. more mature? Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. And when he was showing him the world and basically it, it was a little tiny, little bit mature. Mm -hmm. But in all honesty, when you think about it, that was the real world at that point. The whole point of actually that whole story right. was to try to show Constantine wasn't being a dick to Tim by showing him the bad side of the DC universe. Right. Constantine was just showing Tim, this is the state of the universe. They were all trying Live to live with it. Right. <laughs> and that goes into the main story. Let's, so let's talk about that. The setup is simple. Uh, Timothy Hunter, a child of unknown power with what seems like infinite futures, is unaware of his abilities and potential destiny to save or even destroy the world. He's introduced, as you were talking about, Dave, to the world of magic by the Trenchcoat Brigade. Applause, please. Applause. Uh, i.e. John Constantine, Phantom Stranger, Dr. Occult, and the very peculiar Mr. Mr. E. e. They are aware of the boy's potential to be the world's greatest magician, but his future is unclear. 
Will he become a champion of good or a slave to evilness? That's the question that is posed in these four in this four part series. Uh, the Trenchcoat Brigade has seen it as their duty to help the boy down the path of good, hoping to resolve the uncertainty surrounding Tim's fate. So good. It is. Now, this entire story began when DC was on a mission, was on a mission in the 90s to breathe new life into the DCU with a little bit of magic. This is, of course, about three years prior, as we were talking about at the top of the show, three years prior to the launch of Vertigo, when Constantine would be taken from the regular DC publishing imprint and taken into what many would eventually call the Vertigo universe or even the Bergerverse after its founder, Karen Berger. Uh, the Books of Magic began life when DC Comics decided to highlight some of their mystical characters across the range. That was the agenda. How can we breathe new life, new excitement? How can we get people more invested in the DC comic line? Because let's be honest, Superman, Batman, the Green Arrow, Justice League, it runs stale at times. It does. It does. The 90s is filled with, I mean, people always make fun of me when we're talking about comics. And I grew up in the 90s with comics. And people are like, oh, poor you. That was the <laughs> worst year for comic books. And I... Somewhat agree. I remember there being some pretty good story arcs, but for the most part, the mainstream titles, yeah, they were struggling. They were struggling. I mean, you had the 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 '90s comic boom where everyone thought the comic book industry was going to explode, and then you just had this oversaturation, yeah, of people, and people were just starting to copy each other back and forth, back and forth, and the there was a loss of originality. Yeah. Yes, yeah, absolutely. So this was their attempt to kind of bring in some of their former characters, some of their former big names from yesteryear. Um, they initially approached writer J.M. Uh, DeMattis to script a prose book originally with illustrations, not a straight up full on graphic novel or comic book. But that plan apparently fell apart and D.C. approached Neil Gaiman. Thank you to come up with a four-issue prestige format series about DC's magical characters. I'm not familiar with J.M. DeMattis' work, um, but listen, I'm very familiar with Neil Gaiman's work, as I said, and I can't... I mean, I'm glad he is the one who ended up doing this because he has such a way with the magic. Yes. With the, with the odd and sometimes obscure... Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Odd and peculiar. Peculiar. He's yeah. not necessarily, he's not that guy that's not, he's not going to go to something that we've seen a hundred times. He's going to try his best to do something very different because his mind is just, he's an extremely imaginative man. Read his books, read his works, and you'll immediately understand why he did such a great job with this series. Uh, Neil Gaiman he wanted to make an everyman type character. That was going to be his hook or his gimmick into um, grabbing the reader. Yeah. An everyman type of character and use him as the eyes into this exciting world. And this character, this everyman was actually a boy. It was Tim Hunter and he was 12 years old, a character that would essentially be the audience, which I love when writers do this, create a character that is the audience and, Use their eyes as ours. And, yes. and as you introduce him to this, to the world of the fantastical, the reader is also introduced. Introduced, yes. And I think that, like, the reason why they, that it's also a godsend, but it's also a really great choice by DC to bring in Damon at that point was I kind of understood why Demanis was chosen. Damanis was chosen in the very beginning. Are you familiar with his work? Oh, yeah, of course, okay. because he did uh, He did one of my favorite Spider-Man stories of all time, The Last Hunt. Okay, Last okay. Hunt. well, maybe I am familiar with his work. I just don't know his name. And Damanis is, is very infamous for doing mature storytelling. Okay. Like, he, he, he got his start, I believe, doing, like, the... Uh, weird tales and a lot of uh, horror comics oh, okay. in the past. But then, honestly, one of his greatest stories I ever read was Craven's Last Hunt. 
That's and that was super mature. So do you think he would have been able to do a pretty good job with this? I do think he was. It would have been very different. Yeah, it would have been very different because I think the approach DC had when they chose to Mattis was say, hey, give us a mature story to a story to uh, for for this uh, for this line, the books of magic. And I think the Mattis would have hit it out of the park, but it would have been far different than Gaiman because Mm -hmm. I think. The Madison's writing is kind of like bang in your face, mature, but like that's that's what you get. I mean, especially when you read Craven the Last Hunt, you're dealing with with a character who commits suicide because he can't beat his nemesis. That's dark. For a lot of readers, that's tough to read. That is really tough. So bringing Gaiman is a little bit better because Gaiman has a way of just like what you said making the audience comfortable enough to sit down and read this and yeah. want to read it. Okay. So I'm going through his work. I am familiar with his work. His name just didn't like he wrote house of mystery number 270. He did a whole entire run of the did, house of mystery. He, and I've read those. I believe he did. I vampire also. Yes, he did. JLA legions of, I mean, it goes on Madam Xanadu. So yes, I'm very, actually very familiar. Why? I don't know why I just dropped the ball. <laughs> I'm going to cut all of this out. But honestly, the, my favorite, my favorite Doom patrol. Uh-huh. My favorite storyline he's ever did was Spider-Man was the Craven's last. Time. That's what I, I didn't read that because like, so it, he would have done a pretty good job. He would have done an excellent job. But do we there know, was a reason why he was chosen, but do we know if it will, it would resonate like Gaiman in today's world? Because Neil Gaiman so. is arguably a, a bigger name as of right now than, uh, Dematis. Gaiman, Gaiman's a bigger name. And also, you know, I love Dematis's work, but as I said, it, his type of storytelling would be really difficult to get mass audiences behind. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's a real skill to tell a story that's mature, but get mass audiences to enjoy it. You know? Yeah. I mean, as much as I've been saying right now that Craven the Last Hunt is one of my favorite Spider-Man stories. It's difficult to read, you know, it or anyone who might be a little sensitive towards certain subjects. Don't read it. You, you, you're not going to like it because it's very dark, but it's very, you know, there's a point to it. And I think that Damon on the other hand has a talent, has an absolute talent to take any subject. I think he could take any subject. He could take Gaiman. Yeah. Yeah. Gaiman could take any subject and suddenly tell a wonderful story that a person who's 10 to a person that's 80 would understand and, and enjoy and not feel like uh, yeah. uncomfortable. His ability to write for different target demos is amazing. Yeah. Most writers stay in one demographic. He's all over the place. And he does each demo justice. Yeah. I mean, he has highly mature novels that I would, would never recommend to anyone in my family. Like, I, uh, <laughs> like but, to, to your question, do I think Dematis would have been able to actually do a story? Yeah, uh-huh. I, I honestly think a man of his talent would have been able to pull it off. But I wonder if I would have liked it as much because I exactly. am because Gaiman just is my jam. There's yeah. something about the way he writes and, and how his mind works. That's truly fascinating to yeah. me. That that was kind of like a happy accident, I feel, for DC, for yeah. Gaiman to fall into Books of Magic. Yeah. And the cool thing about his his approach to this, again, keeping in mind that, hey, let's breathe some new life into DC. These other characters may be getting a little stale. Let's see if we can make some more money on some of our classic characters. Because this became a bit of a greatest hits of DC Magic Legends. We had Merlin. Zatara, <laughs> yeah. Dr. Fate, the Spectre, Madame Xanadu, Zatanna, Cain and Abel, Destiny and Death. And some of these characters weren't even currently in print. Yes. So you can tell that they had a an agenda. They were like, let's reintroduce these characters. Let's see what sticks and let's go from there. And it really is a great introduction type story, as I was saying. At times it feels more like the and I don't know if this is a negative, so I, I don't want people thinking this is a ne- negative because it's not. Um, at times, it feels more like J.R.R. Tolkien's Silmarillion 
Similarian. Silmarlarian? Is that how you say that? <laughs> oh my god, I can see something that you can't, can't Similarian. Silmar Silmarlarian. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't <laughs> you can't do it. You say it for me, Dave. Similarian. Similarian. There yeah. we go. Silmar see, I already lost it. <laughs> let's do this again. Let's go let's go learn how to pronounce uh fake words on the air. Go ahead. One more time, Dave. Similarian. Sil Malarian. <laughs> Did I say it right? <laughs> Close. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I'm an idiot. I'm a, I'm not, I'm a layman. I believe. <laughs> um, but it felt more like that. It felt more like an index part of the reference section of, of a library. It, it did. It feels exposition heavy, but not due to poor writing. I know exposition, when you say, Hey, I had a lot of exposition there is a lot of negative connotations that comes with that description, but I don't feel like it's exposition heavy in the way of poor writing, but due to the narrative style and setting, I felt like it worked was it was a series that was meant to teach about yes. this world. And then, and when you're doing that type of storytelling where a character is kind of learning and especially learning about history, history needs exposition. Otherwise, your story is going to be way too long. <laughs> or you're going to have cheesy flashbacks. Or cheesy flashbacks. Yeah. So exposition and that type of storytelling where you're dealing with trying to tell a character the history of something. Right. That's okay. Yeah. I, at least I feel. Yeah. Well, especially I feel as a writer, in the, that's okay. Especially with the whole abstract way that they traveled, especially in the first <laughs> novel where they traveled into time and Oh, and then, then into the dealing. future. I mean, dude, it is that was gorgeous. So gorgeous. It is amazing fucking work. Just so great. Now, this story is broken into four parts, as you and I have alluded to various times throughout this discussion, uh, or four issues. Uh, this was used to split the narrative structure and allow room for a new, I guess, or different artist to draw each issue. And this worked for me. I like when they do stuff like this for stylistic reasons. Yes. Choosing the right artist for a comic uh, is a lot like, or I should say similar to picking the best cinematographer for your film. You have to find the right fit and not just someone that can work well with you, but also the right fit for the actual narrative. What are you trying to say? What is your story? What's the purpose of, of your story? And I feel like each issue shows the appropriate artist or that specific set of narratives. And what was cool about it was each artist that they chose, it matched the character telling the story. Mm -hmm. Like in the very, the very first book you're being the, you're, so like when you take it, when you actually see Tim being told the story of the DC universe's landscape in regards to magic through the phantom stranger, the, the choice of art, matches what you would imagine the phantom stranger telling the story and what, how the phantom stranger visualizes everything. It's very mysterious, very abstract. And like, yeah, you, if you, if you were to go to his website, uh, I believe the artist, John Bolton. Yeah. John Bolton. Um, if you went to his website, his, his work is, there's some imagery there that is like, born of people's dreams and nightmares and like some of the imagery belongs in museum quality art yeah i well that's that's why i call this art Dave, yeah because it, it isn't just a comic book i feel like this is a piece of literature american literature that people in school should probably read because it just it says so much. There's so many, you know, images that are metaphorical. It's visual metaphors are embedded within every single panel, it seems like. These are the types of artists that I feel like really put a lot of thought. They're not just there to take the words that Gaiman or some other writer, you know, had written and say, hey, well, let me just form a story around, you know, the imagery around their words. They're also telling their own story. And I equate it to cin cinematography because cinematographers are the same way. Yes. Yeah, they have to play within the sandbox that the director or the writer has has put them in. But they, they also have to do their job and help convey an additional story. Maybe, maybe if there's some subtext there, 
they have to help tell a story in parallel to the actual narrative itself. Yeah. And like my favorite one, I think out of all four books, the one of the most important points in for me in this series was when you look back at this series, we really get a sense of each character, right? The narrator, the chosen characters that Tim is listening yeah. to. However, the most powerful one by far, in my opinion, is book two, where you have, I think it's Constantine. Constantine's telling the story, but the art chosen, Scott Hampton. Right. Scott Hampton's art that matches with Constantine's uh, narration fits Constantine's character so much, it gave yeah. so much background into how Constantine's mind works. Yep. And it explains why, you know, like me and you have always talked how people need to, people who write for Constantine need to write more than just, he wears a trench coat, wear, uh, smokes a cigarette and speaks, it speaks like uh, uh, English lingo, right? They, right. They have to understand the true characterization of Constantine. Understand how his mind yeah. works. Yeah. And they did that. And they did that in book two, and especially Gaiman's a fantastic writer, but Scott's art elevated that because you'd get the sense that, oh my God, this is, this is why Constantine's so messed up. And that's a good, that's a well-chosen <laughs> word, Dave, um, elevated, because that is the job of the artist. You have to help elevate those words on the page and make them pop and make them come to life. And there is an interpretive nature to Gaiman, Gaiman's writing. And I'd say the same thing applies to uh, the art done by John Bolton, Scott Hampton, Charles Vess, and Paul Johnson. There's an interpretive nature to how they constructed the, each panel, the what they chose to put in there. And that's why I called it art, Dave, because yeah. just like when you go to an art museum and you're, you know, if you're into that, you, it, when you're looking at a piece of art, it's what is it supposed to do? It's supposed to stir up emotions. It's supposed to get you thinking. Um, it's 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 not objective. Art is very subjective. What does it's, it mean to you? What, what does, does it, it do to you? to you? And that's how I felt when I was reading these issues. I was stuck on stupid. I, I feel like at times because I was like stuck on one page <laughs> for like twenty minutes. <laughs> because, I'm like because I'm analyzing yeah. every portion of the image because there's a story within a story. I know you were making fun of me uh, because we had planned this discussion m weeks ago. And every time you came over, I'm like, I have to, we have to postpone this discussion because I'm still reading, rereading the issues because it took me 20, 30 minutes sometimes on just a couple pages because I'm looking into it. It's very interpretive. And that's ultimately one thing that I truly loved and appreciated about this series. Yeah. It's true art in my opinion. It is. It absolutely is. I mean, if, I know a lot of people point to Gaiman's work in Sandman as a masterpiece. And I agree. It, it is, is masterpiece yeah. work. For me, Books of Magic, it's not only Gaiman's masterpiece, but it's the four artists who came together and said, we're going to tell a unified story right. through four different characters, but it's still the narration of Neil Gaiman. Yeah. And we may be biased a bit because we're both john constantine fans what would you say are you a bigger fan of sandman than constantine no I, i'm a bigger fan of constantine okay so we may be biased i mean we both are you know trench coat brigade homos i mean we love them yeah we might be <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest we might be <laughs> but that doesn't mean we can't look at this objectively is it if it sucked we'd be like yeah this was not good and that's the farthest thing from the truth and in yeah. fact I mean, the DC, uh, I want to say during the DC 52 run, when they had just reshifted all types of things, uh, they did a Books of Magic storyline back in 2011, yes, 2012. And the story had started in it's a big old crossover event. And it started within the pages of Justice League Dark. Yes. And this is where my love-hate relationship comes in with the new 52 Constantine. Because there are moments where I'm like, that's really good. And then there's moments like the Books of Magic saga that I want to say was six or seven issues. It was awful. Well, that's why I... I it, Dave, it wasn't even... I mean, and they referenced this. Yes. They referenced the Books of Magic, the original storyline. 
And I'm just like, wow, don't even connect them. Let, let this be its own little shitty thing. Yeah. It wasn't good in any way. Well, the problem was it goes back to like how we opened up the show of like saying like in today's, in today's landscape, you could do a story like books of magic. Right. However, then there's the flip side to it is like, yes, and, you can. And you get the new 52 book series. And then you get the new 52 book series, which, you know, it. It wasn't a book series. It was a, a story arc. There we go. Story it was arc, a story yeah. arc. And I give them props for trying, but this goes into the line that basically there's certain story elements that only certain people or certain artists or certain writers can do. And the non layman, if you will. Yeah. I hate saying that the non-layman or the as I, I as I said earlier the simpletons we're just douches this episode who cares no, let's no, just no, go no. With it. yeah I, I, I'm sorry I'm gonna I, I am a douche at this point because I'm talking about you can't copy Gaiman you can't copy his writing many people have tried and well many, some have succeeded J.K. Rowling she she paraphrased she paraphrased <laughs> but it worked but when you when you follow up a, a writer like mm-hmm. that it's very hard to actually follow up because right. the person that only understands the imagery is that writer yeah and i'm not i don't want anyone to get confused with the current book of series or book of magic series that's going on over on the sandman universe which i cannot say whether or not it's good because i have not i flipped through a few pages but i have not sat down to read i i do own every single issue up to this point I do plan to read it during our winter break and I'll catch up and let everyone know. In fact, we do plan We're planning a discussion on uh, issue 14, which uh, is featuring John Constantine. Yes. So. So not talking about that. I don't want anyone, you know, throwing things at us. Jumping the gun. Yeah. Now, as we said, Dave, each book is designed to expand or explain on a specific side of the DCU's magical landscape, yeah. a world within a world, if you will. Also, each book is designed to develop and flesh out our lead magical characters. Yes. And, you know, that's something that I definitely appreciated, especially from the John Constantine side. I enjoyed seeing someone write Constantine. And again, this isn't slamming any other prior previous writers because I'm a fan of almost everything from the moment he was introduced until the late 2000s. Uh no, I'm sorry. When they when did they end Hellblazer? Uh that was Was it 2013? Is when they officially ended Hellblazer via I Vertigo? Say, I want to say about 2010 or 2000, yeah, 2013. I liked all of it. All I'm saying is that a lot of times we get this character, especially in the New 52, who's kind of a shitty person. He has a few redeeming qualities because <laughs> because, you know, he ultimately is a good person. But he does a lot of shitty things. And I know that is Constantine. Yes. But he's also a good person. He's also doing things for the good of the world. And I understand the ambiguity of that is what sells Constantine as a character. And I get that. I I like that ambiguity. But Gaiman was willing to give him a little bit of a softer side. He still had the snarky, cynical, asshole vibe that you have to have. But he also was a sympathetic character, which we don't always see that we and I don't I don't want people again throwing things at me. So, yes, we do. We see it in this, this and that. But for the most part, there's an image of yes, Constantine. There's an image of Constantine. He doesn't really care who he hurts. And the fact that they gave him a chance to really look sympathetic towards a child, I felt was a win for me as well in this. Oh, um, yeah, because like the thing about Constantine is I think a lot of people really over uh over uh estimate or over analyze or they expect Constantine to constantly be that asshole, right? Right. That he's always ha- he always has always, the trick up his sleeve. The trick and, up his sleeve. And he's always about himself and he's extremely selfish. And now this and, is, and I think at face value, superficially, you can describe Constantine that way. Yeah, and, and this is this is my opinion on the character. People and, and that's the beauty of the character. Everyone inter- interprets the, right. this character in different ways. But to me, the real core value of Constantine is he's kind of like that jaded realist where I've made choices that I live to regret, but I understand I had to pay prices for it. 
right. <laughs> that I had to do it because at the time I thought I was doing the right thing. Well, it's even that's even embedded into this story here. Like with Tim, he's not wanting to teach Tim, teach Tim. about the world of magic because yeah. he knows that once he takes that step into the world of magic, there's no turning back. And for every use of magic, what is that common phrase we always hear? There's a price to pay. Well, the, the, I liked, I think it was uh, on my notes. I have it written here, but I think uh, Constantine's the one that makes the comment that it's like oh, teaching Tim magic is like opening Pandora's box. You I, yeah, don't know I what do you're going to get. That, yeah. And like, it, it's funny because like out of all those characters, the trench coat brigade, Constantine's the the one that basically is like going, you know, I'm really not sure about this guys. Yeah, he has the he's the almost he, you know what he's the voice of reason. He's the voice of reason. Yeah. He's the he, and he's the, in just this like series, I said, yeah. the jaded realist. Yeah. He's like going, I'm more or less believe that if we open this Pandora's box, only bad shit's gonna happen. <laughs> yeah. And then you look at Phantom Stranger and Phantom Stranger just answers him in a very straightforward manner way. Well, he's going to learn regardless. Right. He's more logical. <laughs> and and it, yeah. Yeah. He's more logical. All right. So, Dave, quickly, what was your favorite story out of these four? Oh, man, that's really difficult <laughs> because each of the stories, there's there's elements that I really dug out of each of the stories. I mean, I love the history. Lesson. Just pick one. Pick one. I'm going to make it really hard. Go ahead. I am going to say, okay, I'm going to say this, and it's not because I'm a Constantine fanboy. Okay. It's not, but book two. Book okay. two is my favorite because yeah. I really think the, the the use of imagery, the use of the art, and game and storytelling just hit an apex in that story mm -hmm. because it shaped the landscape of how we needed to perceive the DC universe at that time. Right. At the time, that's yeah. how the DC universe was. And seeing it through Constantine's eyes is kind of very jarring if you're a DC fanboy because the, Constantine points out some really bad things about the DC universe yeah. that we don't want to accept. Yeah. Um, I would agree. I think, and I'm going to, I'm, this is totally biased. I'm also, I'm, I'm going to admit that it's biased. Unlike you, Dave, I'm going to admit <laughs> openly that I'm biased right now, but the number, I think issue number two, book two is probably my favorite. However, I mean, dude, they're all so good. Each of them in their own way. Yeah. Well, dude, it's so good. The one that comes really close to book two to me, besides all the three other books is book four, because I felt you like that expect. one kept going a little too far. Well, and I understand that's the point. That's the point. I understand that's the point. But there's a the, point where I'm like, okay, you guys are really are going too far into the future because I'm starting to lose some interest here. Well, the, the, But the, I get that that was the point. That they was wanted the point. you to probably feel that emotion. They probably wanted to evoke that. They wanted you to separate yourself, uh, separate yourself from that moment. Yeah. And like... But the thing I loved about before, they took the narrator who is, I believe it's Mystery... Yeah, it should be Mr. Uh, Mr. E that basically is the narrator at that point, who quite honestly, everyone constantly mixes up Constantine with Mr. E. But you finally get that uh, you can finally get that gauge that Mr. E is an evil dude. I'm Mr. sorry. He's an evil. I know person. he's had his other stories, but he is a dark, he's a, twisted mofo. He He's like. If, when people like say, "Oh, he's just like Constantine," no. that's why he, they get along. I'm like, "No, no, no, no! Constantine's afraid of Mister E because Mister E is pure he's evil. Yeah, he's he's not <laughs> a good guy necessarily. But I mean, I loved it. I love what it did for Doctor Occult and oh, Doctor as Occult well and as Phantom, Phantom Stranger. Stranger. Yeah, yeah, it was. That's why it's like a buffet where you can't eat all of it because there's too much food, but you can take a little bit of this, you can take a little bit of that, and you get to taste a little bit of everything. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, That's even... That's what felt good about these four issues. Even in, like, in book one, I loved the introduction of Etrigan and Phantom Stranger saying, yeah, Etrigan yeah. was here in the Camelot times. And all of a sudden, during that time, I, re I, I, I when I reread this, and I started getting, like, the memories of this, no one knew what the freaking backstory of Etrigan was. Yeah. And like finding out that Etrigan was like, oh, tied to Merlin. And it's and crazy. Yeah, and you forget going how into deep, those origins. You forget how deeply rooted some of these characters are into yeah. like the mythos of DC. 
I mean, even someone like the Spectre. The Spectre. Like, you just don't, you forget. You forget. Yeah. You forget about, like, because they don't really go into these things. First off, Spectre doesn't even have an ongoing series, so it's easy for people to forget about him. But But he's one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful entity in the DC universe. Yeah. Because he can look at Superman and just say, well, uh, God demanded it. You're out. <laughs> can God demand that Zatanna is my girlfriend? Can can uh, Spectre do that for me? <laughs> so stupid. All right. So I feel like this is 100% Gaiman. Uh, this is the yeah. paragon of Gaiman's work. The perfect example, if you will, of Gaiman. I don't know if this is at the height of his career. I think that would be maybe eight, nine years later. But this is definitely a young innovative mind at work here well this deserves honestly i I mean i mentioned this uh, earlier in the show Mm. books of magic deserves to be held up there with sandman like everyone points that sandman is his masterpiece i'm like going you know don't forget books of magic books of magic for me was a story that can stand on its own level and is just as good as sandman yeah Dude, and it's very cinematic, and yeah. th- this is where I feel like this could could and should be turned into a franchise, oh, it uh, preferably a movie, in my opinion, a four-part movie, because if DC slash Warner Brothers slash AT&T would get their shit together and they were smart enough, this is how they would start their DC franchise from the magical side. Oh, yeah. I know they were thinking about doing a Justice League Dark and other things, but this is the most logical starting point for starting that side of DC. It's something of, like this could open up could open up the DC world to a new audience. The material is so engrossing. Uh it's exciting. It's also a hot genre right now. Yes, the, it is. The, the fantasy, the magic. This is what people crave, the darker side of magic. These are the things that are really um bringing people into TV shows and movies. So if they were to use this as a four-part series, and I'm talking about four movies. Forget trilogy. Four movies. If Harry Potter can do ten movies, you can start your DC magical front with this, with a four-part series. And think about all the characters that are in this. This would be your platform. This would be your your ten-year plan, essentially, that Marvel did with uh, with the Infinity Stones and Tony Stark and Thanos. Yeah, from these four books or four movies if you will they can launch a spinoff in between each one with constantine then one with phantom stranger then one with mr e and dr occult of course we already have the introductions of zatanna and zatara and the specter you can do so much you have it all there you have it all there and it's one of those mysteries about dc especially dc comics that i never understood the one forgotten character in all of this I mean, I love the supporting cast. The supporting cast that Gaiman uses is fantastic. But the one character that gets lost in DC history is Tim. Like, he's supposed to be arguably the greatest sorcerer of all time. Right. And you don't do anything else with him. Right. In DC. Well, we'll see what happens, right, with the whole books of magic. Yeah. I mean. That's currently going on now within the Sandman Universe imprint. Uh Uh-huh. And that's that's why I'm really excited to see what happens now because yeah. they're now bringing that stuff back in. And I really do want to see more of Tim. I want to see, okay, is he going to be the... You have a thing for 12-year-old boys? You sicko. <laughs> you sicko. I really want to see Tim. No, no. I want to see Tim Hunter. <laughs> now, let's talk a little bit about the literary side of things and, and why this possibly may feel so cinematic and so on par with you and I with what we want in movies today, because a lot of this could have to do with the fact that there are similarities with how Gaiman went about writing this to say Joseph Campbell's the hero with a thousand faces, which is a rich source of knowledge on how to write these types of stories. You and I, Dave, have known each other for many years. We studied the style of writing in college. Oh, yeah. In both English courses, creative writing, and, of course, the film classes. Anybody who's actually studied English needs to knows the Joseph Campbell. Yeah, and if you don't know what it is, The Hero with a Thousand Faces is a work of comparative mythology by Joseph Campbell. 
in which the author discusses his theory of the mythological structure of the journey of the archetypal hero found in world myths. The more common phrasing for this is the hero's journey. It's something that if you ever taken a creative writing class, they're probably going to pound into your skull. It's your face. <laughs> it's what so many filmmakers today have used in their movies. Yes. In fact, George Lucas is one of them, one of many who has pointed to Joseph Campbell's work and said, this is what I base my stories on. This is the, the epitome of the hero's beginning. This the is how you, sh- this is how you should write it. And Campbell explores the theory that mythological narratives frequently share a fundamental structure. The similarities of, of these myths brought Campbell to write his book in which he details the structure of the monomyth. He calls the motif of the archetypal narrative, the hero's adventure or the hero's journey. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. How many times have we seen that? It's all oh, about how you make it work because it may not be a unique structure, but it's how you fill it in. You can have a template, but what do you do with inside with, once you're inside that template? Yes. And it's one of the key tenets of creative writing. I mean, you, you can look at every single story, even up to the recent day and break it down into the hero's journey, whether it's something like Star Wars going all the way back or going to today where you have like heck even the event uh, the marvel movies the marvel movies did some the of them yeah absolutely tony stark's journey the one thing that basically i would the say whole, i'd say that template was used more in the second iron man yeah the hero's journey yeah you look at tony stark tony tony stark's story yeah it's the hero's journey. Pretty much any movie where it's larger than life and you're dealing with yes. the fantastical, the chances fantastical. are you're going to have this format. Harry Potter's littered with it. Sometimes they throw it out the window based on whatever movie they're doing. But now let's bring this back to um, let's bring this back to Hellblazer. They use the dark fate of Timothy Hunter. This is why we even are getting into this today. In this episode, they use the dark fate of Timothy Hunter as a catalyst to get the new story started in the Sandman universe presents Hellblazer one shot. Yes. The best version of you in the books of magic. We see a future where we encounter a dying Constantine. He tells Tim they should have killed him. Killed him. Yeah. And that's really all we see of that. Now, they continue that dark fate, that potential future as a way to jumpstart the new Hellblazer, Hellblazer series, how it will be connected, if it will continue, or if they're just simply using it as a way to pull John back into this story and make it fit within, you know, things that various timelines and continuities that they have all working in parallel. We don't know how. We don't know if it's just going to be simply that. However, it was fun to see them use something from a classic like the books of, of magic of magic. All right, so tidbits of info, Dave. Now, we were talking about films, right? Yes. Okay, well, the film version of the Books of Magic allegedly has been in development hell for many years. It was originally optioned by Warner Brothers some years before the first Harry Potter book was even published. Yeah. A series which has been frequently compared to the series, as we had gone on about. Uh, with Neil Gaiman allegedly signing on as an executive producer in 1998. And after several years of drafts and redrafts, the script moved so far from the original concept that Gaiman and Paul Levitz, who was his partner at the time, advised the filmmakers that any audience seeing it expecting a film based on the comic would be grossly disappointed Disappointed. (laughs) and decided to develop the movie themselves. And they worked with uh, screenwriter Matt Greenberg, who had written early drafts of the original script to come up with some closer to the original story. but. As we know, as of yet, as of this very second, there is no planned adaptation being scheduled. However, it is still within Warner Brothers. You know, if it's going to get made, Warner Brothers has to be the studio. Yeah, they have to. And I think the problem, the problem with it was just like we've we've mentioned a couple times in the show is like. The connection to Harry Potter. I honestly think that that's probably what scared Warner Brothers off. 
Yep. Because they would look like um, second comer second trying commerce. to, you know, imitate Harry Potter. So the timing wasn't right. But honestly, I'm okay with them. I feel like today we're in a better position to make something like this just because of the advent of so many amazing visual effects, which this movie would need. Yes. You're going to need that type of expertise. Uh, also the fact that these things are a lot cheaper to do now. Yes. It's a, it's still expensive, but relatively speaking, when you're taking into account visual effects as a whole, and you look at, look at the difference between price and budget from 19, 98 to now it has become a little less expensive because the technology is there yes so there's nothing that they would need to create but we'll see i could easily see this happening if this was disney that owned it even though i'm not the biggest fan of the marvel movies at least they have their shit together yeah that's what you can say whether you're a marvel fan or not you can look at disney and marvel studios and say you know what at least they got their shit together they have a game plan Whereas with Warner Brothers slash DC, when it comes to the movie side, they don't have their shit together. They don't have their shit together. They, they, it seems like they don't know what they're doing from week to week. That's the only thing that scares me about this, because I would love to see this ter- be turned into a giant franchise in its own. A giant franchise, even even if it's a even if it's a, a single movie, at least get no. it done. A single, Dave, you cannot throw this into one single movie. You couldn't, but I mean, if that's something that no. I could, that I nope. had to live with. No, <laughs> Dave, that's like saying I will gladly sit down, bend down, grab my ankles and uh, watch the Dark Tower, the movie while you plow oh, me. Oh, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah, right. We 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 See, can't we can't do that. That's the same attitude with the Dark Tower. Well, you know, what? it's twenty seven books, uh, which probably each book deserves at least a three hour <laughs> epic movie. Epic movie. But hey, we're gonna jam pack, throw away a bunch of garbage. Call this a sequel of sorts, if you know what I mean. If you read the books, you understand. Wink, wink. And we're gonna make this the lazy man way and give you the Dark Tower. F no. Yes. Okay. I don't want that. Now, if here's it's not going to be done right, I don't want it. In the current landscape, though, instead of a film, would you be willing to actually watch this in, say, a streaming series? Uh, it could work if someone like the DC Universe did it, the DCU yeah. app, or even we have the new up-and-coming streaming service, HBO Max. HBO Max. They could do it. Also, Netflix, they have the streaming rights currently, and they're in the middle of producing a Sandman series. So who knows? Maybe we'll get, uh, maybe the Sandman universe series will bleed into other things. Maybe they'll go off into a spinoff and do a magic or books of magic miniseries or limited series that will then catapult other heroes from think, those stories i think that's the only way we're gonna fully get the books of magic honestly when i think about it more is a streaming service yeah because like you're right you're right a single movie it will not do it justice maybe if you did book one yeah but the entire series as a whole no you would have to do like four to six movies yeah there's no way. There's no way. Yeah. So the easiest way to do it would be to do like a streaming service and say like do them in seasons. Yep. Yeah. All right, Dave. This takes us to our final thoughts. You want to start? <laughs> do you have to ask? Because now you cannot throw anything at me because you better tell me why this doesn't deserve a hundred. <laughs> this is a hundred. You want to give everything a hundred. Oh, especially this. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if I can allow it. <laughs> if you, when you look at the series as a whole, it's perfect. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. You, I'm serious. Like people call like Watchmen and Sandman. Pieces well, of not mas- Sandman. Yes. Pieces of, comic book history masterpieces listen i love Watchmen, but uh, it's understandable because of, this of is, the influence yeah the influence it does yes it's very intelligent it's, it's a very, very smart book but and it opened the gateway for like graphic novels and yeah, everything absolutely. else that type of storytelling but books of magic in my opinion stands above Isn't, that yeah it's an absolute masterpiece you can't there's nothing wrong with books of magic it's a it's a perfectly told story perfectly written by Neil Gaiman. And the art is also perfect because it, the chosen artists did their job above what was expected. They gave 
more substance to Gaiman's storytelling. That says a lot in itself. So if there's no weakness in the art, there's no weakness in the story. You're looking at a perfect work of literature and honestly should be taught in schools. So that is my pitch to why books of magic is number uh, is, is worth a hundred. Now, may I be biased? Maybe because this honestly, I'll be honest. This is top three of my favorite bo- comic series of all time. Wow. Look at you, Dave of all time, because the storytelling just connected to me as a young, uh, a young reader. And then later on, when I got older, I looked back at it and said, man, there's a lot of stuff going on in this story. And that's why it influenced me. So, yeah. So I give it a hundred. <laughs> I'm ready to get th- the stuff thrown at me. All right, Dave, <laughs> stop laughing in the microphone. Cause I will throw something at you. So stupid. All right. Yeah, this is the epitome of Gaiman's work. This is the epitome of excellence, I should say. This is why you read Gaiman. I feel like this is 100% Gaiman. And that's all I want when I read a Gaiman series, a book. He has a specific style. There's an artistic approach to it. And it's beautiful. It, it's sometimes it's poetic. Sometimes it is very abstract. If you've read any of his books, sometimes it's you got to reread to make heads or tails of some of the things he's he's putting in there. And this comic is no different. This graphic novel is an amazing accomplishment. He was able to put together a fantastic team of artists to help him with his vision. And ultimately, it's a shame that, number one, this does stand. I just say this does hold up. This is an, this to this day you can read it. It's from the nineties. You can read it and it doesn't yeah, feel it. it doesn't feel aged like some series in fact do when you're reading something from the late eighties or sometimes even the early nineties. You can feel the nineties funk all over it. They did a really good job. And I don't know if that was Gaiman's intent, if he wanted this to stand the test of time, but they did a really good job not delving too far into technology or showing vehicles or showing you know, famous landscapes. It, it was more of a a very focused approach to telling a story. Is very, very. It felt like it was the best word would be. It's very tight. A lot of narrow vision. He only lets you see what he wants you to see, and it's just it's fantastic. I'm gonna give it a 98. That's awfully close. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it should get a hundred, but <laughs> I'm gonna give it 98. All right, well, this concludes this discussion, this episode's discussion on Neil Gaiman's The Book, The Books of Magic. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify. Uh, Leave us reviews. Give us thumbs up, especially on iTunes. Give us reviews. Give us a rating. It helps us pop up on more feeds. The more people that we get doing that, the more eyes that will see our shows. So please, thank you, David. Thank you very much. And good night. My name is John Constantine. I'm the one who steps from the shadows, all trench coat and arrogance. I'll drive your demons away, kick them in the bollocks and spit on them when they're down, leaving only a nod and a wink and a wisecrack. I'll walk my path alone, because let's be honest... Be crazy enough to walk it with me.